All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast brought to you by the fine folks at readrothbard.com and actualanarchy.com. We've got a great show coming up for you today. We're going to talk about the movie War Dogs from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel, and my friend Robert is my co-host, and it's just going to be him and me. Him and I? How do you say that? Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. Just the two of us. You and I. So remember I'm to back, on- baby. Click on those Amazon links and uh, maybe he'll stop singing. Shut your face. Um, you sure that was me or was that the real deal? Who knows? Who could tell? Who could tell? So, hey, hey guys, we're going to be a little bit rusty, like a rusty nipple on this one because Robert was away for a little, little while doing some work, some actual work, and we have not done a show in about two weeks. So we're going to knock off some of the rust here. Uh, just between the two of us, like Robert was singing before, talking about the oh, war God. dogs. That's how I sounded. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, my ears are bleeding. Is that normal? You gotta do it loud. Yeah. Style. So, so um, I'm back. Uh, yeah, I was away for a while, but through the magic of the internet, it's like I was never gone. Yeah, we just posted Ghostbusters yesterday. And we knew that it was going to be for Easter when we recorded it. So if you listen to that episode, you're going to be like, oh, they just did one. But no, it was actually like two weeks ago. Yeah, and that was a good episode. We had some good guests and some good people um, promoting it out there for us. So check it out. Yeah, I think that's uh, a really good one. I, I listened to it at 1.8 speed yesterday just to make sure that the – I did a little bit of time shifting because we did a little bit of uh, conversation – pre-show, but still recorded, and I worked it into the show oh God. seamlessly. How seamlessly? Like, you wouldn't even notice it. Like, uh-huh. I bring up I bring up the Ray Parker Jr. song, and when we were uh, actually doing the conversation in real time, we sort of shifted to another topic rather quickly. But we had been talking about Ray Parker, and you had the cassette tape growing up, and there was the video, and they were all, like, dancing in the streets and all this. I plug that in right after I bring up the trivia about how he listened to the plumbing commercial at like two in the morning. And it is seamless. All that, all that golden content. <laughs> you know, we, we burned so much good stuff in the pre-show that I think maybe we should just start recording right away all the time. If you want to do all the editing, because, you know, we do kind of shoot the shit a little bit beforehand, I me mean, just talking about stupid stuff in my life like how stinky I am because I am recording this episode one because I love the listeners two because you are crying and whining about doing it right now three um, because I would rather be taking a shower right now because I have been without a shower 
since, well, it's been at least a couple of days now because I've been without water. I took my trip and I came back and all of a sudden the water doesn't work in the cabin and for no reason why other than to find out now because the fantastic whale guy just came out and fixed it up. There was a broken actuator. Oh, and Morton Joe came out with his fucking war rig and wrecked your shit. No, this is a capitalistic um, transaction, a voluntary transaction, where I agreed to pay capital monies in exchange for labor and parts for him to service my unit in Fair a enough. completely heterosexual way. Fair enough. I do want to quibble with you a little bit because you say that you would rather do something else, but here you are doing this, and, and that, my friend, is a demonstrated preference. You're actually doing this by voluntary choice. So you're demonstrating that this is actually higher on your value scale. I'm bowing to the pressure of your whining. It's true. And I would (laughs) rather satisfy your whining than be clean. So just remember that in the future when I need a favor from you. Just remember that. I I, I remember it already. So let's get into our, our episode here. I'm sure that everyone loves hearing us talk trash to each other. But we do talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective, and I think that perhaps we should start doing that after I do a little bit more house cleaning. I just want to mention that we have updated the cover art for the podcast. So if you look at it on iTunes now, you'll actually see pictures of Robert and I that uh, Robert has done some artwork, or how would you how would you describe it? It was a photo, and then you stylized it and did a, a fair amount of work to make it look super awesome on you and make me look like a fucking nerd on my side, which is fine. That's I'm good exactly that. what I did. You just described it perfectly. Uh, you like cranked up I, a nerd filter, a, nerd filter to 11? Well, y- what happened was, for anybody interested, and I don't think anybody's interested, but I'm going to say it anyway, <clears throat> you sent me – we. One day I was over at your house and you have this habit of pulling out your camera and just like taking pictures because you're one of those like photophiles. It's like you're some kind of Japanese tourist. I don't know. It's weird. It's the thing you do. So you take out this camera and you start snapping pictures of the two of us and you selected this image to repeat and put through all these um, Prisma filters. And I, so I said to myself, well, that must be the image that he enjoys. That is the image he is the happiest with. So because I love my friend Daniel, I am going to select this picture to use for our artwork, for our podcast. So I took it upon myself to create all this fantastic artwork. It took me like millions of hours, just millions of slaving away on this image, only to have you shit all over it because for some reason – I was in the back of my head. I was going, okay, I'm going to make myself look super cool. Not because I just look cool, because I totally don't look cool, but I'm going to make myself look cool. And then with your image, I'm going to make you look like a total retarded nerd guy, just just dumb face, just like a fat horse, just dumb, ugly face, nerd face, and then just splat that on there for you so that I look like super cool. And then like it's like that before and after pictures, like where the – She's like a nerd, and then she takes her glasses off, and all of a sudden she's some hot chick in the movies. No, like Ali Sheedy in Breakfast Club? I don't know what that is, but... Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Club. We just did Breakfast Club. I know what the Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Club is, but there's no point in which she takes her glasses off, and all of a sudden she's the hot girl. 
she at the beginning she's this like weird goth girl and then uh Molly Ringwald's character by the end like dolls her up. Then Emilio Emilio Estevez is like, Damn, she's hot. Oh shit, you're right. All right. One time you were right. One time. You can remember this time in history. Make note of this. You're right. There is a scene where she gets a makeover and she walks in and like everybody's like, Oh my god, you actually are attractive. So yes, just like that, this image, which by the way, it looks way cool now. Um, on the phone, I noticed the update, and it looks way cool on my phone. Next to all those other professional podcasts that I listen to that are super cool. Um, it looks like we belong, so it makes me happy. So, yeah, check it out. Yeah, so that was our, our long-winded story about updating the podcast artwork, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, man, we gotta get we got to get this down to, like, five minutes uh, so that we can dominate YouTube. None of this two-hour mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, this long-form content just isn't working. <clears throat> I enjoy it, though. I, I, th- I think we actually get to some meaty bits uh, with the amount of time that we let this marinate, you know? Yeah, we stroke the giblets. That's what we do. That's right. Well, let's talk about this movie. This is a movie called War Dogs, directed by Todd Phillips. came out uh, just last year, so it's not uh, not too old at all. It's got Jonah Hill and who's this other guy? Um Miles Teller. Miles, Miles Teller, Miles, Miles Teller, uh, Reed Richards' face, slash whiplash, drum dude. Slash. I don't know what that, I don't know what that means. Some other things. These are some other movies that he was in. He was in some kind of like romantic comedy movies. And, um, he's in, a, I mean, Hollywood does this. They take a guy who's like not attractive, right? And then they put him in a movie and they give him a girlfriend who is like painfully attractive. <laughs> And you're supposed to go, right, what about this guy is super hot for this chick? He was going around giving old dudes uh, handjobs. Right. He gives handies to old dudes, and then he's trying to sell premium sheets to these retirement homes, and they're like, "We we we don't have any kind of incentive to have our old people sleep on super Egyptian high quality sheets. Yeah, didn't he say, would you wrap a lizard in cashmere? (laughs) No, no, you wouldn't. Right, so GTFO, dude. Yeah. Good good thinking with your entrepreneurship. So you do mention this this guy, Miles Teller, and, you know, the very first scene he's getting beat up, right? It's like, you'll get to that point in the movie, right? Like, they, they open with him getting beat up, and then they go back in time. And then, of course, right. by the end of the movie, like you a, catch up to it and then proceed. Right. Uh, right. So when uh, when you first kind of get a, get to see his face, really, you know, he's kind of like scarred up. And I was like, oh, you know, it's related to this beating that we saw. But no, they had gone back in time. So that guy's face is actually like that. Like he's got a bunch of scars. Yeah, I don't and, know what happened to him in his life, but yeah. Yeah, he's like he's the not Tommy like Lee Hollywood Jones. good-looking guy. Right. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I mean, you know. Not, Whatever, chicks dig scars, right? And, and and Hollywood actors, so I'm sure he's he's doing fine. But uh, that was like the first thing I thought of, I guess. I'm weird. Right, but when I saw when I saw him next to his girlfriend, I'm like, oh man, she is slumming it. I mean, she could do better. First of all, he's like broke, right? I mean, he's like he's jerking off guys for money. Which he probably makes decent money. He's making like what sixty dollars an hour when he gets to work. So he probably has a couple of clients a day, maybe. 
Right, and, and the jerking like, off guys for money is just sort of a joke that his friends say he's actually doing in-home massage, like my brother does. Right, who totally does not jerk off old man for money. Right, <clears throat> Unless he does. I don't know. I haven't asked him. Okay, this is one of those unsaid things between men. It's fine. Not a big deal. But, so he's making maybe 100, 150, 200 bucks a day. Um, I don't think that puts him in the category, unless he got to her, like, young. You know what I mean? I don't know. But Hollywood does this. It's just fairly unrealistic. It's fine. It's fine. It's not the point we're talking about. Yeah. So, hey, I'm going to read the description of the movie just real quick, and then we can get into the scenes and, and the other things that we want to discuss. So, again, it's called War Dogs, and it's based on a true story. Uh, with the war in Iraq raging on, a young man, played by Jonah Hill, offers his childhood friend, the Miles Teller character, a chance to make big bucks by becoming an international arms dealer. Together, they exploit a government initiative that allows businesses to bid on U.S. military contracts, starting small, allows the duo to rake in money and live the high life. They soon find themselves in over their heads after landing a $300 million deal to supply Afghan forces, a deal that puts them in business with some very shady people. That's really all it says here. So we can expand upon that. Uh, I did want to mention, since you seem to be fond of doing this, the Rotten Tomatoes rating of this is 60%, but Google users, 90% like it. So they seem to be fans of this movie. Okay, so quick little story. Um, like I said, I went over to the West Side and I did some work. And then I went and visited family and friends. And so I was staying at my, my old man's house for a day. And um, we watched one the, the night, we watched this movie called Cloud Atlas, which is this Wachowski movie, I think. They made The Matrix and then they, they haven't made a good movie since then. And they made this movie called Cloud Atlas, which was incomprehensible, had no plot, impossible to follow. And I was just struggling. I was telling my dad the whole time through, I'm just like, this movie's not clicking, it's not working, I'm not following these characters, I don't care about anything that happens. This is terrible. It's a piece of trash. It's a dumpster fire. And the next morning, I get up, and I'm watching this War Dogs movie, and he's kind of making fun of me because I'm kind of glancing at my phone every once in a while. And I'm still following the movie. But it was so infinitely easier to follow, and it was way more entertaining, and I could follow it even while I was checking my phone every once in a while. Because um, it actually has a plot that is followable. So it's not super complex. It's a fairly straightforward movie, fairly easy to follow flop, plot. Um, but anyway, just, just way better than Cloud Atlas. So that's the point. That's the point of my meandering, meandering story there. All right, and that's our episode on Cloud Atlas. That's right. Don't watch it. It's right in there with the Suicide Squad. Three hours of incomprehensible nonsense. So, I mean, if you're into that, do it. <laughs> I mean, it's got, it's got some big-name stars like Tom Hanks, Tally Berry. A bunch of big-name people are in it. I don't know why. Anyway, who cares? I'm not here to shit on Cloud Atlas. We're here to talk about War Dogs, Daniel. Right, but, but it is amazing that those guys, the Wachowski brothers, are still living off of the cachet they've built up from The Matrix. And and just Matrix 1 and, and sort of 2, because 3 was garbage. Yeah, so, they built pretty, up so much political amazing. capital and goodwill that they've been able to make just middling and mediocre slash terrible movies ever since. It's amazing. That's what happens when you make one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. Yeah, one and a half anyway. Yeah. All right, so let's get so, back. 
to this War Dogs movie. Yeah, so um, this kid, he's uh, doing this job he's not super happy with. Um, there's a funeral, and he runs into this old childhood friend who is this small-times arms dealer, which he's able to do it due to the U.S. government. Did you remember exactly what happened? Why He, he made some explanation as to why the government um, – were they facing backlash over the Halliburton uh, deals after the Iraq war? Yes. So they opened it up to everybody? Yeah, they mentioned that uh, Cheney was giving all of his buddies backroom deals, and so that made a you know media firestorm, and so they reacted by opening up the, I guess, a website to any anyone who wishes to bid on these things to have quote unquote transparency in the process. Um, but right. all it meant was, you know, like like they they allocated arbitrarily like some percentage of the piddling stuff was going to go to these small time players whereas the big time defense contractors were always going to get the bigger stuff uh and it reminds me of something that the company i work for did a couple of years ago which was they tried to um have an initiative to have minority and women-owned business stuff um be like one of our driving factors like <laughs> Because, you know, we, we produce a lot of different products, but not everything. And so sometimes we buy via outsource. So it's like you, you contract with another manufacturer and then you provide it to your customer. And so our initiative was to, if we had to go outside the company, it was to go to a minority or women-owned business so that we would qualify for some kind of designation bestowed on us by on high that, uh, you know, played well in the SJW playpen. Uh, just ridiculous stuff. But th- th- that's basically the impetus behind why these guys have an in uh, to be able to do what they're doing in this movie. Right. Yeah. And, and he, he said, uh, he said, you, you know how, yeah, yeah, they liken the story to when they were playing Little League. And it used to be this one really good player would always get like, you know, player of the year, MVP, whatever. And then some parent complained. And so the next year they all got trophies and even like the retarded kid got a trophy. And, uh, so the Miles Teller character is like, well, you, so you're basically the retarded kid. And he's like, Jonah Hill says, I'm the most retarded. <laughs> Probably the funniest line in the movie. Yeah, or I'm the biggest um, retard or something. I don't know. Right. So he's, yeah, he's what they're called war dogs, where the movie gets its name. And right off the bat, um, our main character, David, um, he has some moral qualms about it. He's not super happy about it. And um, he doesn't necessarily voice those qualms to anybody, but he knows that his girlfriend wouldn't be happy with what he's doing. Right, because she's all and, anti-war left. Like they do, they sign petitions and go to protest rallies and all this stuff. This is back in the you know GWB days. Right. This is at the height of the anti-war left being against the Iraq war. Yeah, before they, they all hid out in their caves when Obama won and, and basically right. did the exact same shit that Bush was doing, but maybe uh, a little bit more, actually. He escalated a fair amount. Right. But, um, yeah, so he's against the war, but he sees the the monetary benefit, and he doesn't necessarily have the best like moral argument against it. So he goes ahead and does it, Right, because the hot girl is um his girlfriend's pregnant, right? Like this kind of all plays into his decision. Definitely, right. 
so they start working together, and their first big deal is this um, that he finds. There, there's this website where they're scouring it day and night, and they're looking for little deals, these little scraps they can find value in. And they find this Beretta deal where they get a, it's a contract to sell like thousands of pistols to troops in Iraq. Um, and part of their deal is to like establish contacts with different buyers. And they find this, what, like a captain or a general or something like that. I think it's a captain who evidently has the, well, as you see in the movie, I mean, it's just, he has a, a, a warehouse full of cash. That they that they took from they stole from Saddam Hussein, who apparently just had a warehouse full of U.S. currency. Yeah, I think they said something like twelve billion dollars were was in this warehouse. Yeah. So I, I some, have heard stories that there was a bunch of currency printed and then brought over there on pallets um, for making you know like bribes and other day to day purchases that wasn't taken from Saddam but was actually created and then brought over there. Yeah, there's a documentary called Iraq for Sale, and there were actually a bunch of Iraq or um, anti-war, like, lefty documentaries um, back in the day that uh, kind of detailed all the, you know, the uh, the lifeblood of the state, right? I mean, you, the state's all about picking winners, and so if you're buddy-buddy with the state, they will grease the palms and the skids, and you get the the no-bid contracts or just the massive graft to do all kinds of horrific stuff because that's that's what it's about. Wars are not necessarily fought against the enemy. They're fought against their own people. So the real losers are, you know, not not only the, the millions of people being displaced and murdered by the machinations of war, but the own, the own people that are back in the homeland that are paying for it all because right, they'll hire... Yeah. They'll, they'll buy some bombs with stolen money to blow up a bridge, and then they'll hire, through a no-bid contract, some buddy of theirs to rebuild that bridge. They, they must have and, made Paul Krugman proud, man. Yeah, yeah, you're breaking all kinds of windows. You're making the economy strong, and uh, the American taxpayer is the one that's footing the bill. And not necessarily right away. I mean, they're taking out loans from the Chinese or whoever is, you know, selling them these guys money so it's really you know your children and your children's children who are going to be on the hook for uh, that bridge and it's all in the name of patriotism hoorah yeah i just want to mention that uh there's a a guy named robert higgs who's really good about this stuff he's written a, a several books one of the big ones is called against leviathan and one of his i guess terms that he's coined is called the uh, ratchet effect and it's basically where progressive policies or aggressive policies, kind of both, you know, same thing, uh, are implemented during times of war and then scaled back a little bit during times of peace, but not quite as much as before the war. And then the next war comes and, well, now they've had, had precedents to, you know, go yay far. Now they go a little bit further and then it ratchets back a little bit. But you're incrementally growing it each time. So the, the power and the control of the state keeps growing through these events. It's sort of like uh, Rahm Emanuel when he said, when he was in the Obama administration, you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. You always want to use that as an opportunity to get some of those things passed that you wouldn't otherwise be able to pass. You know, do some of the things that the, that the people would be against you doing 
uh, during normal times, but because there's a crisis, you take advantage of it to push something that you've had in your back pocket all along. Right, and the American people seem to have no limit to the amount of security that they will trade for tyranny. They're like, yes, do whatever you need to do to keep us safe. And that's what every – Larkin Rose is really good about this. He'll say, you know, what every tyrant throughout history has ever said. It's always give me – let me do this to keep you safe in this one time of need, and then, you know, I won't, I won't ask for any more. And then the next day he's asking for more, and the next day he's asking for more. And, yeah, I think uh, there's only on been on one on time – I think there's only been one time in the history that I'm aware of where somebody was offered, you know, the, the ring of power and declined it. And that was when uh, George Washington, when his presidency was coming to an end. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the guy because he was president. And that's bad enough. But they offered him like a lifetime thing. You know, they're like, oh, man, you know, if you want, you could be the king of the United States. And he declined. Yeah. So good on you, George Washington, even though. You were part of the whole shit show starting, but yeah, um, I'm all about you know your independence, but uh, I'm not a fan of the Constitution or what you've created. Sorry. <laughs> so let's get back to this movie. Um, so they get this contract to sell several thousand Beretta pistols um, to this captain in Baghdad, and at the last minute the uh, Italian government legislature passes some kind of law saying that um, none of their arms can be shipped to Iraq. Yeah, or, or no no products or or no something. There's an embargo that is yeah, put in place like right. a, a week prior. So it's all, you know, happening like after the bid has already been won and all, and all of that. Right. So the captain calls and he's pissed and he's like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, well... How about these Brazilian guns? And he's like, no, these Brazilian guns are shit. I want the Italian Berettas. They're good or, you know, no deal. And you'll be essentially blackballed from ever doing business. I forget what – do you remember what the, the term was? It was some some kind of blackballing. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall. But after he hung up with them, he's like, those goddamn nitwits are over there. Well, I'm out here protecting their freedoms. They want to give me this fucking garbage gun, you know. <laughs> right. Like, How'd my freedom get way over there, buddy? <laughs> That's the lie they tell themselves, that they are there protecting our freedom over there. It's whatever you got to do. It's mental gymnastics. You know, it's how you do. So um, the boys figure they need to get those guns into Baghdad some other way. Um, so what they have them do is to ship the guns to Jordan, which then gets held up at customs and stuck in a warehouse somewhere. So the boys have to put some boots on the ground and make things happen, and they grease the skids um, by bribing some local dude who has some connections with the government there to get their guns out of the warehouse into a truck. And so then they just, like, overnight it. Overnight it, they get stopped at the checkpoint at the border, and they bribe the guards with some Marlboro cigarettes, and then after that, um, they pass out and they wake up in Fallujah at some gas station and they find a dead body. And the only one who's upset about that is Miles Taylor character. <clears throat> Everybody else is like, eh, whatever, dead bodies, who cares? Um, they get gas and then they take off as the, what, the Taliban or whatever is in pursuit. 
some guys with some machine guns in the back of pickup trucks. And um, as they're, like, running out of gas, they're pouring some gas in the tank as they're escaping. And um, I question how much of that actually happened, if, or if it actually happened quite like that. It seemed to be made up for movies' sake, but whatever. Uh, this is what happens in the movie, so we'll evaluate it based on that. So they escape, and the United States government, like some troops, kind of come to their rescue and chase off the Taliban. Um, right, just, just as they're to, about to get, you know, murdered, right, then there's this uh, Huey helicopter or gunship, Apache maybe, that starts shooting at him, and then there's all these Humvees that go by and flip them off as they, <laughs> as they drive by, which I thought was right. pretty funny. And, you know, right. as, as anti-military and anti-war as I am, I, I, I got a little bit of a charge out of that for some reason. It's like, oh, hey, they came to save the day. I mean, I was sort of like swept up in the little war propaganda. Right. So it. I think I think if you put yourself in their characters, even, no matter how anti-war you are, you would be happy to see some friendly guns <laughs> on your right. side. The guns not pointing at you at the moment. <laughs> right. So I'm completely anti-war, completely anti-army, but for once they're on their your side. You know, you're getting some value out of the amount of money you're being raped for. Yeah. So they make it to Baghdad. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to to ask was. Was it known by the hot girlfriend at this point that he wasn't just selling sheets to the government? Like, did she know that he was there for guns at this point, or was he was he still kind of hiding that from her? Because his initial story to her was, you know, I have like 60 cases of sheets in our apartment, and hey, I found a buyer. We're going to sell them to the government for the for the army, and you know, she was all anti-war, so he didn't want to tell her about the guns and all of this stuff. Um. I don't I, remember, but I do. I do remember that he lied to her about traveling from Jordan to Baghdad. When right, he contacted yeah. her, he was just like, "Yeah, I'm in hotel. Everything's cool. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna go down and get some breakfast or something." Blah blah blah. Well, but I don't so, remember if he was at that point. He was telling her he was running guns. I don't think so. I don't think not yet. Because once she finds out that he's running guns and whatnot, doesn't she leave him? Uh, well, I think so. Yeah, because then. Then he says, oh, I won't lie to you again. And then she finds some money in, in the guest bathroom. And she's like, well, you didn't tell me about this. So now we're leaving. Um, right. Even sure though he like buys a Porsche and he's like moving into this super nice house in like yeah. Miami. Right. <laughs> yeah. So where did she think the money was coming from? I, I, I think there's a certain amount of willful ignorance on the part of like mafia wives and people like this where you're just like, eh, now he's making a ton of money. And he says it's he's selling sheets. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Now I got a I got a question though. Like, if she's so anti-war, then wouldn't even selling sheets to the government like be a bad thing? I would think so. I wouldn't. You know, if 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 selling them guns is bad, then wouldn't selling them sheets also be bad? Maybe not. You know, on the same scale, but you'd be helping them, right? You'd absolutely be helping the war effort. I mean, if you're selling troops boots and helmets and body armor, you're still encouraging them to be there and encouraging the war effort, absolutely. Yeah, so shouldn't she have been against that to begin with? Yeah, but she, you know, she's, you know, as long as it benefits her. and uh, you know, The pragmatic you know, woman. All right. Yeah, man. How many mafia wives have demonstrated that fact? Yeah, like in Sopranos or in uh, Goodfellas, 
or even The Godfather, which I think uh, Goodfellas and Godfather are, are some movies that we should do soon. Because that, that's an interesting topic to explore, I think. Yeah, man, there's a certain amount of pragmatism going into people's minds um, when you got money coming in. You're not so super concerned about how many people died or how much blood is on your hands. Yeah. So I, didn't mean to, to, I didn't mean to derail you. I just wanted to get that Sheets thing in there because I think that that should have been a no-no on her list. But she's also probably one of those trendy, you know, anti-wars. Like, I'm, I'm against the Republican wars, but not the Democrat wars. Right. I 100% agree with you. Uh, she didn't seem too principled. It seemed to be that they were against this war, which... To be fair, they had plenty of good reasons to be against this war. I'm 100% anti-war. I was against the Iraq war. I'll be against the next 500 wars. But they seem to be that this war was somehow mainly, you know, mostly more egregious than, say, like the first Iraq war or World War II was or World War I was or whatever, even though those were massively egregious also. But, um, yeah, so yeah. they end up yeah, doing and, the and, deal. Well, I just want to mention, this this is timely because there's all sorts of shit going on in uh, Syria right now, and there's tensions with North Korea, and so that was one of the reasons I wanted to do War Dogs next, just so that, you know, we were sort of commenting on on this stuff. Okay, but to be fair, this this is pretty much evergreen, to say that there's tensions in North Korea and problems in Syria. You you could be listening to this episode any number of months and years from now, and it'll still sound like perfectly evergreen good news information. Right, right. But but the one thing about the Trump versus Hillary thing was that Trump was, of course, going to be the, the lesser of the two evils option and keep us out of these entanglements. That was or the sales pitch. Minimize them. Which I thought was hilarious at the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, a politician not keeping their, their campaign promise. Like, how how novel, how new. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I listened to a Molyneux bit, like a 20 minute. I usually don't listen to him, but I I have to hear him start to eat crow about this topic because he's been so pro-Trump for the past like two years. And now he comes out saying like, wow, I just can't wrap my head around why this is a good thing. This, is, this seems like a bad thing that Trump is doing. Oh, my goodness. It's like, yeah, duh. Of course, he's going to do bad things. He's going to lie and he's going to get into power and then he's going to be a warmonger. Why does this surprise you of all people? who have said for years that politicians are all a bunch of lying scumbags who say whatever they want to get into power. But he thought that Trump was like the one case, like that power doesn't corrupt universally. Whatever. Anyway, I, yeah, I who knows? I don't know what know, he's doing. I'm going to post uh, an article by F.A. Hayek about why the worst always get to the top. Uh, it's chapter, I believe, 10 of The Road to Serfdom, and I'll post that, um, I don't know, probably – probably sometime this week. So by the time this show is showing, um, I'll put a link to it below. But, you know, check it out. Hayek had some great insight into why a strong man will be the uh, the go-to person when there's times of crisis and how the worst rises. Like, it's not the cream that rises in a political process. It's always the worst, the most backstabbing, the most power-seeking that rise to the ranks like they do the, the the dirty shit to get to the top yeah and the fact that a guy like stefan molyneux who has for like a decade now been libertarian anti-war ancap guy who knows about the horror of sub politics to be surprised 
it was just hilarious. I don't know if he's doing this for effect, if he's just playing a character now. Oh, that's interesting. Sort of like alt right. Well, he may be because he's he's too smart to be surprised by this because he's been saying for years about how it is. Yeah. To well, now come out and say, oh, I can't believe Trump's doing this. This is weird. Yeah, we, we lambasted him in one of our episodes right before Christmas. And I think we speculated that maybe he was just doing this for ratings or for, you know, getting more views or whatever, because he knew that it would be popular. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned this uh, idea of playing a character, because right now, currently in the news, Alex Jones, the InfoWars guy who's, you know, we've been aware of him for a dozen years or more now. And he's going through like a divorce with his wife and his lawyers are arguing that you can't actually, use uh, his on-air personality in their judgment on whether he can have kids or whatever, right? Right. It's, it's actually a custody battle, right? He, he was divorced uh, two years ago, but yeah, oh, he's okay. now doing a custody battle with his wife and his lawyers are arguing that he plays a character on a show and then that would be akin to prosecuting Jack Nicholson by his Joker persona in Batman, um, which is incredibly interesting. Um, he may just be arguing that to win the trial, but it may have far-reaching implications on his show where it calls everything into question that he said. Um, I know Joe Rogan is a good friend of his, and he's had he's been on that podcast before, and Joe has talked to him about, and he just thinks that Alex is like a crazy person. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know the truth, obviously. I know about as much as anybody else, but I did listen to the Alex Jones show for off and on for a good like five years, from about 2005, 2010. Um, and he said a lot of things that turned out to be very true. And he's also said things that turned out to be false, but he probably has as good or better track record than the mainstream media has. Um, if he actually was playing a character and is playing a character, um, well, that's that's got to be the end of his career, I would imagine. Right, but but aren't, aren't we all? I mean, I know that I present differently, to use leftist language, in different situations with different people, and and we've talked about this, like on uh, in in the realm of dating, right? Like people present themselves other than they are. I mean, isn't that just sort of like a, a normal fact of human existence? Like social interactions are different depending on the company and the environment you're in. That there's. Well, I think there's two different things. There's that, which is absolutely true, and everybody does that. Um, I think everybody can recognize that they do that. I do that. I mean, you don't mention everything you talk about with, you know, your best friend, with, you know, your grandpa or whatever. Um, uh, and you can watch, you see this play out in all kinds of stuff. Um, you'll watch, like, well, Stefan Molyneux on the Alex Jones show. And where Stefan on his own show will talk about, you know, non-aggression principle and self-ownership and yada, yada, yada. And he gets on Jones' show and he'll talk about the secret state and the government conspiracies and... Constitution. Uh, Constitution, exactly. He will tailor his message for the audience that he's talking to. And everybody does that, to more or lesser extent. And it's rare when you find somebody who does not filter and censor themselves based on the company they're in. But I don't think that's what the lawyer is claiming. I think the lawyer is claiming that the Alex Jones character is a complete fabrication because 
there she his wife is trying to claim that he is a danger to their children and that um the character that he you know the the threats and the 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 outlandish things that he says on the show they're turning are the frogs gay you know are are one hundred percent him him in real life you know it's actually it's not a character at all, whereas the lawyer is claiming no that's a complete character that's made up just for the show his public persona. This so, sounds reminiscent of the uh, Hulk Hogan sex tape thing where the, the argument was that Hulk Hogan is a public persona, but these were private moments that were publicized by Gawker Media, and that's why he was able to win that huge settlement with them because they were mm-hmm. claiming that you know it's his public persona that they were exposing, but he was saying, no, there's a differentiation between the Hulk Hogan wrestler character in popular culture and media versus whatever his name is, Terry something. Uh, Terry Bullock. Just, yeah, who's just getting it on with his best friend's wife. I, yeah, I, I think Hogan had a good point, honestly. Um, I can't imagine that he was running around in his personal life saying, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, kids. <laughs> Which is what he was always saying back in the day. That's um, right, brother. I think, I think Jones, That's right, brother. I think... <laughs> That's right, brother. Um, I think Jones has a tougher case to make because he has been there. I don't think there, there's that super, you know, division between his public and personal life. Um, where, where the Hogan character is a much more of a cartoonish character. Although literally, you could argue that literally Alex character is a, right. You could argue that Alex Jones is also a cartoonish character based on, it's probably going to come down to the, like the jury and how cartoonish they think his beliefs are or what he says on his show. But, um, I don't know, I, I got the fact, I got the impression from what I exposed myself to of his show that, uh, he was a fairly genuine character, that that was fairly genuinely him. Um, if they're going to show evidence of him in his private life being a, you know, normal dude that doesn't believe in that stuff, then that could just destroy his career. Cause he, he's lived his entire life and he has his entire career based on his credibility. Because he says things like, you know, according to my top secret um, contacts in the FBI and the CIA, the good people, you know, such and such and such. So if that's all crap and he doesn't actually do that, doesn't actually have that, doesn't actually believe these things that he's saying, then he's done. I mean. Right. But couldn't you argue that that the bombast might be the character, but the content might not be? You know what I'm saying? Like, like maybe being entertaining to get the content out there? Maybe, if that's if that's the defense. Because um, her claim was that he makes threats on his show, like to, um, like to politicians. Like, these politicians are whatever, and they, the world would be better off without them, and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I don't know, I haven't listened to him in a long time, but he used to say things like, um, well, so-and-so is the devil and literally the devil, and she gets on a broomstick and rides around it at night. He would say things like that all the time. Now, clearly, that seems like hyperbole to me, but that's the kind of things he would say. And he might be saying things that are threats to people. Uh, she's trying to make the claim that he is a you know a violent person, that he can't be around the children. Um, I think he's got a fairly... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen? It's interesting. Um but uh, maybe we should talk about this War Dogs movie. 
<laughs> yeah, let's get back to the Warlocks movie. So because we're totally disjointed, I want to go back to an earlier part of the film where they're first hanging out again after the the funeral. Okay. And uh, apparently David's parents had been like, hey, don't hang around that Ephraim kid. Uh, and then he had moved to California and then finally come back after a couple of years. And they're like, do your parents still hate me and all this stuff? And and he's like, yeah, you know, but let's go hang out, have some good times. They They go and try to buy some weed. And the, the contact isn't there. So then he makes a, a deal with some dudes on the street. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit because that was kind of interesting. Mm, yeah, I remember that. Okay. So, yeah, they pull up at this kind of apartment complex. And there's some gentlemen kind of hanging out, sitting on a car, shooting the shit, listening to some music. And, yeah, his his normal weed dealer or whatever isn't there or what have you. And... The guy's like, well, why don't you just buy it straight from me, and you can cut up the middleman, and I'll get you a better deal. And he's like, okay, sweet. And instead of asking to see the product first, he just hands over like, what was it, like 400 bucks or something. And so he hands over the money, and they're like, they just take it. And then he's like, okay, let me see the see the product. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And so then he flashes like a pistol. And so... um the, um, what's his name? Ephraim. Who should probably figure out his name? Ephraim. Okay. The Jonah Hill character. The Ephraim, he just goes to the back of, he's like, okay, that's how we're going to play it. So he goes to the back of his car and pulls out like an AR-15 or like a, it was like a submachine gun, something like that. Um, looked like European make, make me like a HK or something like that. But yeah, he just kind of shoots it into the air and they, everybody else takes off and he's like, where are you going? I thought we were going to hang out. We were being cool or whatever. Um, so what did you, did you, did you have an issue with that? Um, I, uh, I mean, he didn't, he never aimed it at anybody, but he was absolutely threatening them. Um, but he was responding to a threat. So how did you feel about that scene? Well, I feel like the guys were, were shitty to him to begin with. Like they defrauded him out of the three or $400. Uh, right. So that that wasn't cool. And then they threatened him like, hey, you know, leave this alone. Otherwise, we're going to get physical. We're going to shoot you, whatever. Because there were like five dudes. They're all ripped and they've got the gun and everything. And then he goes right. and gets his gun. And I guess he, you know, he's an arms dealer. Right. So it was like some kind of a European or Israeli uh, weapon. And it, was, yeah. and it was in auto mode. Automatic. Yeah. Right. So he was just blasting like, you know, 30, 40 rounds into the air. You know, to scare them off, which, okay, uh, scare them off. But shooting 30 to 40 rounds into the air in a neighborhood in a major city, like, those got to land somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole movie, like The Mexican, I think I want it's called. It's all about uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, like, down in Mexico. And that happens. Um, there's, like, a group of people, like, all shooting off their guns. And a bullet just lands on a guy, kills him, shoots him, <laughs> falls right through his head, murders him. Because I don't know if you know about physics, but you do. But let me explain it just quickly for those who care. So the velocity of a bullet traveling it straight up will be at the same velocity at the same point as it's traveling back down. So that bullet, as it goes along that parabolic arc, will reaccelerate down to the ground. Well, it or will it? It'll at least reach uh, terminal velocity, which is enough to kill a person. So, yeah. So that that's the part I had a big issue with 
Like, okay, if you want to, like, make these guys pay for stealing your three or four hundred dollars, shoot their car or something, you know, like, assuming this is like an Ancapistan situation where the drugs wouldn't have, would not have even been an issue to begin with. So I think this whole transaction would have been way more above board. But don't just shoot indiscriminately into the air and put thousands of or hundreds of people at risk, right? Anyone in the, you know, four block radius or however far it could go, you know, make make the restitution come out of their hide, you know, shoot their car, like cost them the $400 in damage and then consider the transaction closed. Like, all right, you lost the $400. We had the satisfaction of shooting out their car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was extremely, extremely reckless, absolutely reckless. And he would have been absolutely at, um, at risk for any damage that he caused to anybody in any, any property. So, yeah. Uh, and, but by the way, spoiler alert, this guy's kind of like the villain of the movie. So, uh, he's, you know, at one point it's kind of like a buddy movie, but we find out that he is not to be trusted. Which yeah, he I has think no that, qualms about anything. He's just straight id, you know, just going. Right. And this guy, he got, I think, uh, Miles Teller's like, whoa, dude, what did you just, you know, that's not cool. What did you just do that? He's like, oh, it's cool. I've got like a class, whatever, weapons license or something, so I can just do whatever I want. Which is kind of hilarious. So because just because you have a gun doesn't mean you can just start firing it off in the middle of a city. Yeah, exactly. That, that license is going to protect you from, from any kind of repercussions from murdering somebody. Anyway. Yeah, so we should probably get this one moving along a little bit. So let's get back to the uh, Jordan thing, the Beretta deal. So you had already talked about how they ended up driving it in. I, I just wanted to mention that they had initially planned to fly it to Jordan and then fly it to Baghdad, but it got held up in um, Jordanian customs, and it was going to be like a several-week, maybe longer, permit process to be able to fly them out. And so they bribed the local guy to talk to his contacts in the government and their their goal was to fly them to Baghdad. But the guy was like, well, I can't get you the permit. It still takes six weeks, whatever, you know, bu- bureaucratic bullshit. But I got right. you your, your guns. So here's the best smuggler in all of Jordan, and we're going to drive. And so then, you know, the situation you described ensued. But I just thought that was a kind of interesting thing that they said, okay, the restriction is you can't fly it without this piece of paper with these nine stamps on it. So we're going to go around that. Like this whole movie is about stupid processes and regulations that are put into place and then ways to work around them, like doctoring uh, documents, uh, doing things that are against the spirit of the regulation, but not the word or the verbiage of the regulation, you know? Right. So this movie is very much akin to Dallas Buyers Club, which was all about that, where the main character was just working outside of the specific stupid laws and regulations that were in place to try and service his customers. And these guys are doing the exact same thing. They're just, their customer is this horrifically violent and powerful organization. Um, so they get them, I think we left off with them arriving in Baghdad with the guns. And they like show up and they're like the, the conquering heroes. They're like snapping pictures and like shaking hands and big smiles everywhere. And the captain's really happy with him. And then he's like, okay, let's get you guys paid. 
So they go over to this warehouse, and we already mentioned it a bit, but there's just pallets and pallets and pallets of cash. And they count out, what was it, like like a million or something or more? And they stuff it in bags, and then they escort them, get a military escort to the airport where they fly back to the United States. Um, I mean, of course, the money's all stolen, so, but <laughs> they're perfectly fine with that. They have no moral qualms with that, and they're supporting the war effort. And um, apparently he has a certain price. I mean, if he was getting paid, you know, 10 bucks an hour, he probably wouldn't be doing it. But if he's getting paid all this money, then all of a sudden his morals are fly out the window and, hey, he's he's getting a piece. So he's happy. And he's supporting his wife and his, his soon-to-be kid. So I can understand the pressures of supporting a family. Um, Daniel, you have... Resort, you've been able to support a family without resorting to um, working for the government. I don't know if you want to mention that a little bit. Uh, sure, yeah, I don't work for the government. I mean, I, I do at least 30%, 40% of the year, but not directly. <laughs> not by uh, choice. Yeah, it, it is uh, tax time. Um, tomorrow is the official deadline date, but this will post a couple days after. But, yeah, uh, there have been situations in the past where we would have qualified for certain government programs like I quit my job and could have qualified for certain things like related to health care especially when my wife was pregnant um, I guess I could have gotten some unemployment or some other things like that but we always declined uh, doing that because just on principle you know I, I, I don't want to be a part of it um, so yeah I mean that's pretty much what I'd say on that <laughs> okay so you think you're better than him that's what you're saying? Yes. Okay, good. Just want to make it clear. I'm All right, fucking, so they're back in the state. White male. That's right. Um, and they start going through all these deals. At this point, they, like, grow their company. They hire some people. And everybody's searching this website for deals. And they're starting to bring money in. And things are going good. He buys a Porsche. He's apparently getting money from the guy. Like, they're divvying up the money, you know, some, right? They have a verbal 70-30 agreement. So he's getting paid. Um, but then comes along this big Afghan deal where the U.S. government wanted to arm the Afghan military for the long term. And they post this huge, massive $300 million order for um, it, the main sticking point is this 100 million rounds of AK-47 ammunition. Everything else they can kind of get. But there's this that everybody else is like struggling to find this 100 million rounds. And uh, so they go to like the trade show for arms dealers in Las Vegas, and they quickly find out that they're out of their league. There's way too many regulations and you know, moving parts for just this small operation to deal with. Right, and all so of these things are, of course, imposed by the big players to keep out these small guys like this. Right. So um, they quickly kind of get a reality check, and they're like down in the dumps and upset about things. But then our man, Miles Teller, is sitting at a craft table or something, and up walks Bradley Cooper's character, who is this kind of like infamous arms dealer guy. And who kind of says, hey, I've got 
you know, I can hook you up. You get with me, you work with me and we can, we can get this deal done. He's got contacts in Albania where all of this AK-47 rounds are just sitting there because Albania is trying to join the EU and a term of them joining the EU is that they would scrap all of this weaponry that's just sitting around the kind of those Cold War weaponry. Right, they'd all go to like NATO rounds or something, right? Right. And um, it's it's kind of funny because here, Miles Teller is like this arms dealer, right? And they find out that Bradley Cooper's character is like, okay, I can't, I can't stay here for more than like two days. And um, Jonah Hill's character is like, yeah, I've always said Vegas is like a two-day town. You just can't do it. And Bradley Cooper's like, no, the United States. And he's like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, I'm on like the terrorist watch list or the no-fly list or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, the Miles Teller character is like, whoa. We want to do business with a shady guy who's like on the terrorist watch list or the no fly list or whatever it was. And I think I thought that the Jonah Hill character actually made a whole lot of sense. He's like, you can get on that list for anything, any infraction. They can put you on that list for no reason, for having the wrong name. I'm on that list because I have the wrong name. There was some Robert Johnson character back in the 70s who blew up some building at some point, killed like a few people. So now every Robert Johnson is on the no-fly list or the or the, the terrorist watch list or whatever it is. It's ridiculous. And it, it seemed weird that this David guy, the, the Miles Teller character, would like balk at this. But I guess if he's like some kind of lefty guy and he thinks he's keeping his nose clean and like he's like a good arms dealer as opposed to the Bradley Cooper character who's like a shady arms dealer, supposedly... What? Seems like you're splitting hairs, buddy. What did you think about that, Dan? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I thought that it was kind of hilarious that, that he let that hold him up when, you know, he's out there running guns via truck across Fallujah, and, and he's concerned about the Bradley Cooper character being on some, some list that I'm sure that this dude would be on by now, right? Yeah. Sure seems like a whole lot of pot calling the kettle black situation going on where he doesn't even like he like the Bradley Cooper character exists in this other category of person that he doesn't realize that he has long since joined. (laughs) But whatever, as if some sort of like stamp of approval from this violent organization means anything, I guess it does some to some people. And I guess in that kind of lefty liberal mindset, I guess it does like. I'm a good person, so of course the government doesn't think I'm a bad person. Right, I got nothing to hide. You're dealing with, you're dealing with violent, murderous liars. I mean, who cares what they think? That's <laughs> just ridiculous. Why would you care what the government thinks of you? They're a, they're a pack of murdering, terroristic liars. What? Why does their opinion hold any sway? Yeah, it's just funny. Yeah, though they do have uh, an asymmetrical amount of power over you. So, I mean, it sort of matters in, in some respect, right? Like In a practical sense. Right. But don't think of yourself as any kind of a lesser person because of the opinions of some horrific, lying murderer. This is ridiculous. I mean, sure, in a practical sense, you don't want to be on these stupid lists because you get hassled. And there are certain things that these violent terrorists won't let you do because of these stupid things. But don't let it affect your 
how you feel about yourself or anything like that or how you treat other people who are on those lists. Are you kidding me? Is there anybody that's dumb enough in this world who would meet somebody and find out that they're on a no-fly list and go, oh, geez, you must be a bad person? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know what's kind of funny about that is the left is all about everybody feeling good and emotions and everyone gets a trophy, right? But then mm-hmm. you're on this list, right? So like one of the ultimate trophies, right? Like don't be on this list. And they're like, oh, well, you're on the list, so you're, you're bad, you know? Yeah. And, and couldn't, couldn't the other person respond, well, I self-identify as not being on the list. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, these people don't make any sense. It's beautiful. You guys give yeah, us so really much doesn't. fodder. Thank you, lefties. You give us so much to talk about because you make no fucking sense. That's right. You are the best. So the, they do decide to work with Bradley Cooper. So they go to they fly to Albania, and they go to this. They're led to this warehouse where there's all this old Cold War weapons, tanks and bombs and all this crap. But the main thing that they care about are these like shipping containers full of AK-47 rounds. And their main concern is like you know these rounds are old. Are they going to work? So they crack open a case and they test them out, and turns out they they still work. They're working real good. So they're like, yes, let's do this deal. Fantastic. They go back to the United States and they start work on putting in their bid. And one of their problems is that in order to put in their bid, they have to face like three audits from the government because this is such a big bid. You have to meet certain standards and they have to be sure that you're going to be able to pull through on this deal. They're going to give you all this money. So they have to fabricate all these bank statements and all these records and all these books. Just straight make them up. So it's all fraud. But you're dealing with a fraudulent agency. So I have a question for you, Daniel. Did you have any problem with the fraud that they were committing? Well, on one level I did because it it was fraud and, and they were going to use this fraud to further, you know, further along the war effort and, and, the criminality of an enterprise, it's, it's already evil by definition. So yeah, I had some qualms about this. Though they were also trying to overcome some ridiculous hurdles that wouldn't necessarily be in place in a, uh, Libertopia in Capistan situation. I mean, we talk about in Ghostbusters where there's like the underwriter's laboratory, which was a, right. you know, a private, uh, method of, of verifying whether something is quality or not. And and mm-hmm. I think that that is a good model. I think that something like that would always be in place. Like, I mean, you got Yelp for restaurants and things like that or any other service business. You know, like when we go to a new restaurant, we always look at the reviews and hey, is it got crappy reviews. We're not going to go there. So I, th- I think and, and that's with, um, you know, the present reality, the present situation. Right. Uh, there's also mm-hmm. the case of. Um, you know, health inspections and, and whatnot. Like, we assume that things are safe, and we always hear about in the news, like, oh, E. coli breakout, or this restaurant's, like, poisoning people or whatever. And the leftists always claim, well, that's why you need the health inspector. They'll protect you. But aren't these examples of health inspectors failing to do their job? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know? And, and also, because there's the health inspectors and there's the regulations and the permits and license and all these things, like, people the general populace, general consumer, sort of has this assumption that, oh, I don't have to worry about it. These state services are in place to make sure that 
things are safe, what, what have you. So their guard is down. They don't have to be as keen or aware of, of their own eyes. You know, like in, in a Libertopia society and a Capstan society, I think that there, if there were any questions of whether a restaurant was safe to eat at, like you would be able to have those questions answered. You know, they would have an incentive to show you how clean it was or what inspections they have had by, you know, some third party, uh, service that is well respected, you know, and, and I don't know how I got to this tangent, but, uh, oh, it was about, you know, the fake documentation. That was a hurdle to keep the small guys out, right? And so they were like, well, we're going to overcome this hurdle. So in that respect, I was like, hey, you know, they're trying to work around some bullshit, but they're also uh-huh. perpetuating this terrible situation, uh, by helping out the government, giving them a better price on something. And so overall bad, but in a sense, the ingenuity to get around the, um, regulations and, and the prohibit, 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 how do you say that word? Prohibitions? Prohibitions. Yeah, prohibitions, uh, by the entrenched interest to keep out the smaller, uh, competitors, you know, to make sure that they could maintain a higher price, whatever. Uh, I like the idea of, of the loopholes that they were exploiting to work around that. And I think that's sort of like you were saying, the Dallas Buyers Club, like he was going through the loopholes to do what needed to be done to help himself and help others. This is a slightly different thing, like they're doing this for their own, uh, you know, enrichment in a corrupt system. But I do right. like seeing that, you know, things get passed through the loopholes, get around the regulations, get around the um, hurdles that are put in place. Okay. Good answer. Um, do you think that it, people, individuals, because that's all that exists, individuals, have an obligation to tell the truth when you're dealing with the government? Now, there is a pragmatic reason, because you don't want men with guns to show up at your door or them to harass you and attack you. But do you think you're under any obligation to be honest and truthful to these violent thugs and when you're being coerced and shaken down for your money? So tomorrow's tax day or whatever, do you have any issue with people lying on their taxes? Well, I thought that the Fourth and Fifth Amendment meant something, but apparently they don't. Uh, you're supposed to be secure in your papers and, and uh, your information. That's the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth is you don't need to incriminate yourself, but when being required to submit all this financial documentation to the government, you're sort of violating both of those principles, both of those supposed rights. Um, but I think, like you said, for pragmatic reasons, like you're better off not doing that, like do whatever legal means are allowed to you to minimize the amount of tax that you're going to be extorted, um, you know, because you're always better off leaving people to make their own decisions with their own money. Because they're going to allocate those funds towards satisfying their most urgent needs and wants. And as soon as you take that money from them, then they have to move down their value scale. Like whatever's towards the bottom can no longer be satisfied. Like they're going to focus on just the, the higher things that, that need to happen, but they can't, uh, they don't have the resources left to get down to, you know, item seven or eight or nine or whatever's on their list, you know, in a, uh, in an ordinal sense. Uh, and likewise, you know, the government's taking this money. And they're throwing it into this bureaucratic mess, which, you know, 70% of it gets eaten up in just bureaucracy, you know, like administration, employees, buildings, bullshit, red tape, 
So, you know, even even in charity, I think I think only something like 30 percent of the money that goes in actually makes it out to anyone. Um, did I say charity? I meant welfare, like something intended to help somebody. Only 30 percent of whatever the funds that go in actually make it to them when it comes to going through the bureaucratic government process. Okay. So let me do a quick little bit. Um, I recently saw a movie called The Accountant. And the opening scene in The Accountant, starring uh, Ben Affleck, is Ben Affleck is sitting in his office, and he's doing the taxes for this old farmer couple. And they are able to pay their taxes. So he is looking for loopholes with so to minimize their their risk. Um so like the wife has this um kind of like a side business where she knits some stuff or something like that. And so Ben Affleck's like, you mean so you you work out of the home. So which uh which room do you normally sit in when you're making your knitting and she's like oh usually you know wherever the living room so you mean your office so um and how big is this room and she's like 200 square feet no i mean 300 square feet and he's like gives a thumbs up to make it bigger you know and then he's like so do you ever do any traveling to um to sell these products well if i take them to the you know the post office oh you mean in your in your work truck (laughs) so he's like being able to itemize all these deductions fudging the rules a little bit so I was instantly on board with this guy being a hero. <laughs> but, I mean, technically, she's committing fraud, right? But yeah, and it's tactical it sense, but, I mean, once a gun's to your head, I think a certain amount of morality goes out the window, right? Yeah. I don't think you're under any obligation when someone's got a gun to your head to treat them honestly because they've already established the fact that they are not going to treat with you honestly. Yeah. You know, I had an interesting Facebook exchange where I was party to it in in a a short respect with someone on a a thread and the guy was saying well you always have a choice like taxation is actually voluntary and my argument was well not really i mean they they force you and he said no one forces you to do anything you get to choose and i'm like well the consequences are you know x y and z like they're gonna send you meaner letters and then come after you put you in in a cage or kill you he's like well that's a choice you can choose to do that or you can choose to pay and I'm like, well, Ugh, good Lord. <laughs> sure, Go you ahead. are choosing an action, but it's not an unencumbered choice. Like there is force it's being a applied. Choice. Right. Yeah. So he was totally fucking like playing some ridiculous uh, nihilistic, you know, you you ultimately choose what you do, but these illegitimate consequences that are Im- imposed upon you. Uh, I finally got him to agree that the consequences, even if they're illegitimate, um, should, like the, the laws that are in place that enforce paying taxes, like the criminality aspect of it, he said, oh, yeah, that should be removed. So I sort of got him to agree. He, he got into this like semantic argument, and he was saying, you make, you make the choice. And I was like, well, but they're using force. And I think he, he was incorrect in saying that um, – because you're still choosing, it's not force. I think you are choosing, and you're accepting that force may be a consequence of it, even if it's illegitimate. So it's an encumbered choice. So it's not really a free choice. It's not a moral choice. It's a gun in yeah, your there's, face there's choice. 
there's an absolute difference between a voluntary choice and an involuntary choice where someone sticks a gun to your head and you have to make a decision as opposed to you doing a thing because you want to do a thing. Uh, if you don't see the difference in that, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> there's a reason why there's a whole class of political thought, which is all along the lines of human beings ought to interact voluntarily. And that force is wrong. Violence is wrong. Attacking someone is wrong. It's it's a whole thing. And it's it's funny that you would, there are people out in the world that don't recognize that. But whatever. Okay. So, Daniel, we're talking about this movie, um, War Dogs. Occasionally. Um, every once in a while, we get back to it a little bit. Um, so, they go to Albania, and they find out, after they've already like agreed to this deal, because they, they put in their bid, right? And they the bid gets accepted. And um, they find out that the bid was the lowest bid by $53 million. And uh, Ephraim is like super pissed off about that because he kind of feels like he left money on the table, which is kind of ridiculous because he was super happy about it beforehand. He was perfectly happy with his bid beforehand. He's perfectly happy with doing the whole deal according to the bid. But then he was upset about it later because he found out that he had un- lowballed the bid by $53 million. Yeah, and I thought, I thought that, that was kind of interesting because – like you were saying, you know, he was perfectly happy with it beforehand, but then after the fact, he's like all pissed off about it. And that's almost this uh, leftist, you know, sense of fairness. Like, oh, I got ripped off because uh, I could have had so much more. But I think what he fails to realize is that he only got the deal because he was so far under everyone else. And every every dollar closer would have been less likely that he would have gotten this thing. And then the other interesting thing was when they go into the uh, meeting with the government, after forging all these documents and whatnot, they get super fucking high and go talk to these guys. And they're saying things like, oh, yeah, now that we've met you guys, we, f- we feel like we're in good hands or whatever. And they're just sitting there like totally baked. And yeah. I doubt that that, you know, actually happened. Um, but they broke all sorts of protocol. Like the government people are like, oh, well, we're not supposed to tell you uh, any of this information. But what the hell? You know, we'll tell you anyway. And so that's how they found out that uh, they were so much cheaper. Um, it was just kind of this, you know, totally fucked up process. Like they're definitely not following protocol. They're just kind of greasing the the backs, everyone's back. You know, they're all rubbing each other's back to uh, get um, sweetheart deals. And it, it's not about uh, solving the problem. It's all about like, all right, how do we spend these resources and then justify a bigger budget next year? You know, that total bureaucratic method. Yeah, it's just about yeah getting your piece of the pie, and it's like all these all this stolen loot sitting in front of you, and you're just scrambling to to get it all and spend it all so that you can stay in business and keep raping the people. It's uh, when 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 governments call the gang of thieves, it's not that's not hyperbole. That's, that's exactly what they are. So, yeah, so um, he's all upset about the fifty three million, but. But then they get over it and they're like, okay, well, we're still going to make, you know, like $50 million profit or something along the way. They're going to make $100 million. $100 million profit. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing fine. You know, they, they, sure, yeah. they could have yeah. made $53 million more. Um, but, you know, these two 20-year-old, 20-something-year-old kids doing okay in this deal. Doing doing okay. They're not, they're not starving. So they end up going to Albania and it's really uh, – the Miles Taylor character that's doing all the, the groundwork there. But he, so he goes and he makes a huge discovery 
that all the ammunition is Chinese ammunition, that they were just, when they did their tests, they were shown like the one box that wasn't Chinese ammunition. And the problem is, is that the United States has an embargo on Chinese ammunition and they won't accept it. So he calls the um, Bradley Cooper character and he's like, you know, what the hell, dude? And Bradley Cooper character, I think, makes a great point. And he's like, so why didn't you check the ammunition before you bought it? <laughs> yeah, you just looked at the one case they showed you. <laughs> yeah, why did you just look at the one case they showed you and we're totally fine with that? It's on you, buyer beware, caveat emptor, to make sure that you are spending your money wisely. Um, so the two kind of concoct this scheme, which – I think it was perfectly legitimate. <laughs> I thought it was perfectly fine. Where they are going to rebox the ammunition. They're actually spending a whole ton of money to transport all this heavy ammunition. Uh, they go to some Albanians, some local Albanians, and they have them rebox it all, repackage it all. They unbox the Chinese ammunition out of these kind of like wooden crates and metal boxes, and they pour them into plastic bags and cardboard boxes, and it ends up like being a huge net profit. Uh, they pay the Albanians like a hundred grand to do this, and it would they they reap multiple times over in uh, less transportation costs to get the the the, the bullets to um, to Afghanistan. Yeah, something like three million or thirteen million dollars of gain in the uh, transportation costs. So even though you know, and then they actually made a joke. Per, you know, in between each other, just like, oh, he's going to charge us a hundred grand. They're like, nothing, you know, like, what do, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They pretend to be discussing this huge cost when actually, actually, they're actually going to save thirty million dollars in shipping costs. So it's going to cost them a hundred thousand dollars to save thirty million, and they're going to get to be able to sell the ammunition to the United States, which is the actual the whole deal. So they're going to get this three hundred million dollar deal. They're going to save make thirty million more dollars. And they're actually going to be able to do the deal, all because of this shipping change. So this is going on. And um, Ephraim, he learns that Henry, the Bradley Cooper character, is charging them a 400% markup on each round. So $0.10 cents to on the $0.2.5 cents on the rounds. And he wants to cut them out of the deal, which is really dumb. I I don't understand this. Ephraim character at all in this movie. Um, doesn't he understand that this Bradley Cooper character is providing a ton of value to them? That without this Bradley Cooper character, they're not making this deal. They're not getting this $300 million deal. They're not making this $130 million now profit, but he still wants more. So he works to cut him out of the deal entirely, which ends up with our flashback to the original scene, opening scene in the movie, with the Miles Teller character getting a gun in his face. Yeah, I agree. It was totally fucked up. And it seems like the Jonah Hill character, he was always uh, kind of being shady and, and very id-driven, like we were saying. You know, he was upset about low-balling by the $54 million, so he could have he could have made another $54 million, and then they do this shipping weight change, and they're going to net back $30 million of that. And then he discovers, well, right. we could make even more if we cut this other dude out. But, you know, I mean, at some point, the value that you've created, you've got to be satisfied with the deal. You know, like everyone, everyone's got to be satisfied with the deal. 
And if you cut this guy out, of course, he resorted to violence, right? He, he goes after David, kidnaps him, uh, puts a gun in his face. And, of course, David didn't know anything about it. Like, he told the Jonah Hill character, Ephraim, hey, don't screw this deal up. Like, don't fuck this up. And, of course, he does. Right. Now, to be fair, the Ephraim character is snorting cocaine like the whole movie. So he may be getting, like, paranoid or something like that. But, yeah, his, his, his character motivations and actions make a whole lot of zero sense other than that he's just some shady piece of crap character that you do not want to be friends with. Yeah, Which, I agree. to be fair, he gets warned about at, like, a dinner party and other times, although they claim to be, like, best friends. Um, but, yeah, the uh, the Miles Teller character is warned repeatedly throughout the movie that, that, that Jonah Hill character is shady, and he sees evidence of it firsthand. So, yeah, he gets beaten, robbed, taken, held at gunpoint, um... So he just like bails, gets out of Albania, says he's going to be back, but he's never going back. Um, right, and his contact there uh, ends up going missing, right? So it's like another part yeah, his of driver. the re- retaliation. Right, yeah, his driver disappears, and his driver, the driver's wife, is like comes to him and is like, "Hey, he's missing. You know, where is he?" And uh, he's like, "I don't know, but I'll I'll find out for you, and when I come back." Of course, he never goes back. And what actually is their downfall is that um, the stupid um, Jonah Hill character, who is so obsessed with like squeezing every dollar, or thinking he's getting screwed over by everything, doesn't even pay the guy for the reshipping, the repacking, which is the $30 million bonus, and the $100,000 is nothing to them, and he doesn't even pay that, and that's what ends up screwing them over because the guy calls like the U.S. State Department and like reports a felony or whatever. Yeah, when that's totally true because they had only shipped like 5% of the of the product at that point. And so I don't even know if they would have um, had to pay him that whole 100 grand anyway, like maybe 5%. Yeah, it's probably like 5,000 or something like that. It's like yeah, like a pittance, them. you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like here's a few pennies or not and I'll just let, bring down the whole show because Throughout the movie, they're making the, you know, Bradley Cooper is saying, you know, just don't give them an, an excuse to come down on you. They're looking for an excuse to look the other way because all they want really is the, 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 the ammunition and for this war, you know, the war is the big scam. So they're just looking for a reason to keep it all going and everybody, all the wheels to be greased and everything like that. So just, you know, don't call attention to yourself. And yet here he is doing that exact thing. <laughs> call attention to himself by not uh, getting everybody paid, not greasing all the wheels. So, yeah, yeah so David the, the comes back to Hawaii. The, oh, I'm sorry, go right. ahead. So David, you know, so David goes back to Hawaii, Miami, I'm sorry, Miami, and um, he wants out of his deal. He offers, he says he, at the through what he's done at this point and the money that they've made with the 70-30 split, he believes he's owed $4 million which is like a tiny little amount, tiny little amount on this $130 million deal profit that they're going to be making after the deal's all done. And he even offers to settle. He's like, I'll take 40 cents on the dollar. So he's only asking for $1.6 million. And even yeah. that he won't do. Ephraim won't do. And you're, at what point is this guy just like completely retardedly stupid? He, 
he knows the Ephraim character knows everything. He knows that um, or the David character. He's been in on. Yeah, that he knows he's been committing all these felonies and frauds and whatever throughout this entire time. So he could bring them all down if he wants to, and that's essentially the um, the thing that he's counting on. Um, he ends up meeting. They ends up meeting in like a Denny's or whatever, and he's saying, you know, I just want you know what's owed to me. And the guy's like, if you bring me down, you bring us all down. So yeah, or and, and he offers him like two hundred grand. Yeah, which is like a joke compared to the $130 million in profit that they were going to make. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so that's essentially the end of the movie. Um, they get busted because it turns out that the um, their investor, their initial investor, who ran like some dry cleaners in the area, um, had gotten arrested and was wearing a wire at this meeting. So the feds had everything they wanted on them and uh, they end up getting arrested and um, the mouse teller character gets like house arrest for like, what was it? Like a year or six months or something like that. House mm-hmm. arrest. And the other guy does like six or seven years or something like that, which is probably more like two years and then probation. Um, and then their company is eligible to sell more arms in like 2021 or 2022 or something like that. So, you know, you steal a candy bar and you get life in prison and <laughs> you do all this other stuff and you get house arrest, slap on the wrist. It's, it's, it's funny, the justice system. It's, uh, anyone that thinks it's not completely broken is, uh, lying to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was, uh, I mean, there is the sort of the, at the very end, the uh, Bradley Cooper character comes back to the David guy who's now doing massage again, and he hires right. him to be the massage guy or be his client, and he's like, oh, it's it's you, you know, if I wanted you dead, you would have been dead by now, and he offers him something like a million dollars for keeping his name out of the, the whole FBI deal. Right. So it's sort of this, like, all right, you're, you're a good guy, I'm going to make you whole whatever so it's like a nice like dovetail at the end um but yeah other than that i mean yeah, it's pretty much it's pretty much the whole movie right yeah that's how it ends is with the bradley character bradley cooper character giving him the, the million dollar hush money or whatever um which kind of establishes the bradley cooper character is the more even though he decided to solve the his problems with violence in albania uh seems to be him more of a reputable character almost yeah than, i mean uh, the other I feel- I feel like that response was almost uh, justified in a, in a sense, though, you know? Cutting him out of the deal so he sticks a gun on the guy's face? I mean, he didn't kill him, but he might have killed the, the driver, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, right. I mean, who who knows what, what the repercussions would be in a private property society. But, you know, you screw someone out of a multi-million dollar deal, I think that there's going to be some hell to pay. I would think so. But, uh yeah. And and the driver guy was um was the linchpin for that whole situation as far as he his brother or his uncle was in the government and so he was able to provide the information for how much was actually being paid and he would have been the guy who would have been able to to actually edge out the Henry character. Okay. See I I, I might have missed that part when I was looking at my phone, but <laughs> that makes sense. 
So, yeah, um, it's a whole bunch of guys doing some shady stuff. It's a tr- based on a true story, so who knows what that means. There's probably a bunch of parts that have been enhanced for your viewing pleasure. But uh, And it's also told from the Miles Teller character's perspective. So Jonah Hill is painted as the irrational, coked-up uh, villain character. Big fan um, of Scarface. Yeah, had- they, were, they were living up the Scarface, like, Mountain of Coke thing. <laughs> right. So, yeah, maybe he was living up the Scarface persona in real life. What he was trying to do, I don't know. But um, it's definitely played up in the movie as such. Um, yeah, I, I question, I mean, the money must have been really good for the David character uh, to go along with this crazy person. You know, the lifestyle, I guess, is fairly seductive. I mean, they're getting high all the time and making lots of money. Racing um, their Porsches. All you got to do is. Right. So all he's got to do is perpetuate war and murder and violence. <laughs> I guess it's a trade-off a lot of people make. Yeah, you know, this is another one of those deals that was sort of like the dude who was auditioning people for porn and then not following through. All these guys had mm-hmm. to do was follow through on what they said they were going to fucking do. And the likelihood of this blowing up in their face, you know, it, 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 they probably would have been fine. Yeah, right. Just the pay the guy. Looking for an excuse to look away. Mm-hmm. Pay the guy that was doing the exchange, and he never would have ratted on him. Yeah, and, and everybody makes millions of dollars. Yeah, don't screw the Bradley Cooper character. You know, like just yeah, be happy with what you what you've accomplished. <laughs> right, but I guess then there's no movie, right? Because then we don't hear about this, and right. But yeah, yeah so, it, it, it's bizarre how these people, supposedly real life people, make these just idiotic decisions. I guess we don't hear about the ones, you know, there where people make real decisions and smart decisions and realize that hey, I'm I'm making millions of dollars, I should probably be happy if if I'm not making a few more million dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I don't want to make the argument like uh well, you know, when when is being paid millions of dollars enough? Like I don't want to say mm-hmm. that there's some limit that, you know, everyone should be satisfied with and anything else is rightfully, you know, to be redistributed or anything like that. But, I mean, this was a shady situation to begin with. You know, you're, you're taking stolen money from someone who's going to go out and murder people. Uh, you got a good thing going. Like, if you're already going to be involved in this shit, just do what you say you're going to do and don't fuck it up. Yeah, why they chose to screw over the people that were facilitating this whole huge deal makes zero sense. You would think that you would want everybody in the in the situation to be happy. You'd be like buying everybody dinner every time you saw them and greasing wheels all over the place and making them happy and getting them prostitutes. And, you know, you would be you'd be spending that extra dollar just to make sure that everybody's happy. And so that nobody has any reason to rat on you or anything like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Engage in the you know political game. Right. Like make sure that all the hands are greased and the spirit cooking is all, you know, done. However, they do that shit. <laughs> I don't even know. Right. Sort of like half making stuff up. But like you got to keep the golden goose laying the eggs, you know. Yeah, you're already doing an immoral thing. So you've already you're already determined that you're happy with that or perfectly OK with that. So to get all high and mighty and say that, oh, this guy's screwing me over a little bit. Unbelievable. How dare he? Yeah, what what are they marking it up to? You know, like, oh, he's marking up 400% and then we're selling it to the government for, what, you know, a 1,000% markup? (laughs) You know? 
Yeah. Where's the the, the moral indignation coming from? Uh, like somebody with zero self perspective. Yeah. Hilarious. You know, the one thing I didn't understand is why these guys uh, even had an opportunity to get into the middle of the Beretta deal. Like, isn't Beretta a reputable company? And couldn't they just deal directly with government? Like, I can sort of see, like, the Bradley Cooper character when they were in Vegas, he was like, you know, I facilitate the things that the government can't engage in directly. Mm. You know, so there's... Due to laws or regulations or whatever. Yeah, so there's sort of a little bit of cover, like, a little bit of um, don't look this way. You know, they'll, they'll get what they want, but they can't do it through official means, you know, loopholes, right? But, right. I mean, as far as I know, Beretta's just a, you know, a gun manufacturing company in Italy. Like, why couldn't they just sell direct to the military? I don't, yeah, I mean, that's my negligence or lack of information there. But it seemed like a lot of the areas really just, Maybe that maybe there were regulations in place where they couldn't deal directly with a the manufacturer. They had to have a middleman, and so that is what created this bottom feeder, like war dog thing. Because that was like the derogatory term for them, right? And they they sort of liked it, so they embraced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it sure seems like the, that captain with his mountain of stolen cash could have just picked up the phone and called Beretta headquarters. <laughs> I mean, up to that week prior, you know, he didn't know that 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 uh, law was going to get passed. So anytime before that, he could have just given them a call and, hey, I need 10,000 Berettas, pistols, bring them on over. Sure seems like he could do that, but I'm sure there are, yeah, official channels and things in place to prevent that sort of thing for some right. reason. Who knows? To, to aid in the transparency <laughs> or some bullshit. Right. Anyway, uh, let's get let's get to the point where we do the overall impressions and summary and start winding this one down because we've been going for way longer than I ever thought we would on this movie, uh, which I think is great. I mean, we had plenty to talk about. Indeed. Um, yeah, the direction didn't strike me as anything particularly good. The script uh, had a few funny parts, but it wasn't super anything amazing. Um, if they really were working off the real life script, then yeah, the Jonah Hill character is a crazy person. And the Miles Teller person is a stupid person for working with him. Although, you know, he and his was girlfriend is hot. His girlfriend is way hot. He was way out of it. He was batting so far out of his league. It's unbelievable. Um, but good on him. Good for him. If, if, if his real life uh, wife is that smoking hot, good for you. Um, I probably wouldn't do so much lying to her, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Because she seemed like a fairly, you know, a, a super pragmatic person, as as most women are, not to be super sexist about it, but because um, most people in general are super pragmatic. But, uh, you know, she was against the Iraq war, but I think she probably could have been able to justify it if he had just been honest about it. If he had just come to her and says, hey, we have a way to make a shitload of money. Um, yeah, I know the war sucks, but, you know, we're going to make a shitload of money. And she would have been like, hmm. Moral outrage in one hand, shitload of money in the other. I think she's probably going to go towards a shitload of money. Yeah, which one's going to uh, fill up faster? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think the shitload of money is going to be uh, winning that race. Um, so I think if he had just banked on that, um, he would have been. There wouldn't have been that much drama. But you know, in the movie, you got to play the drama. So maybe we got a more dramatic version for the movie, which is probably almost certain. Um, the acting was fine. I thought that the the Mouse Teller character was fine. I he didn't strike me as doing a particularly great job, but he wasn't terrible. 
neither the, the Jonah Hill character. Again, the script, I don't think, you know, it's more of a, you know, it's not like, it's not like an Oscar contender. It's not like, you know, it's a super emotional movie. It's more just like a kind of a popcorn-y flick. Um, so for what it tried to do, it did it just fine. It was competent. I think your 60% or whatever Rotten Tomato score was about right. Maybe, maybe it was a 65 to 70%er for me, but it was, uh, far, far better than that, uh, Cloud Atlas piece of shit. So, um, I was happy with it. My, my, my expectations were super low. What did you think? Well, I, I hadn't even heard of it until you recommended that I watch it, and I saw that it was on the HBO thing, which we have for the Game of Thrones, which has been tainting a oh, lot of my thought lately. <laughs> for, for whatever reason, I get into these arguments on Facebook, and I'm like, thinking I'm quoting Rothbard or something, and it turns out it's fucking Game of Thrones. It's like Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> but uh, So we have the HBO, and, and this was on there, and you recommended it, so I watched it, and I, I found it entertaining. Uh, like, like you were saying that the girl was like way out of his league, uh, a little piece of trivia, the, the actual David, uh, Pakowitz guy, whatever his name is, uh, he makes a cameo in this. Uh, if you remember the, um, where he's doing the, the sheet sales at the first, like retirement home, the guy playing the guitar, that's the actual guy. The, um, the owner of the retirement home or the, the manager or whatever. No, the singer guy, the, the guy who was playing guitar. Okay. Like entertaining the the residents, mm. like playing some Creed song or some bullshit. <laughs> Sweet, I don't remember that character at all. So yeah, so that, that's probably oh, why he didn't didn't star as himself. Probably uh, not why. But uh, you, you did mention that that the girlfriend was you know anti-war, and now that I, I recall, she was aware when he was in. Jordan that that they were running guns at that point, but she was okay with that. I think for the pragmatic reason, but she got upset with him because he had said that he didn't leave the hotel. But then she saw pictures of him in Baghdad, and and then of course oh, right. found, found the money. So she had already come to the I'm okay with it because we're going to benefit, even though you're selling guns to the government. Where uh-huh. me personally, I would have been like, you don't even sell sheets to the government. Like that's aiding and abetting. <laughs> Right. But, you know, whatever. Like, we're not going to judge them, these uh, movie characters on their principles. Like, most people don't even have principles to begin with, which is why they come to us to listen to our show, because we try to have principles and incorporate them in our lives and in the show, as well as lessons from Austrian economics, etc. But in general, I thought the movie was entertaining. I I thought we were going to go with the angle that they opened the movie with, which was like, war is the health of the state. We don't look at the battlefield. We look at, you know, this is dollar signs for this, this, and this. And each soldier on the battlefield is, you know, $17,500 to us. And there's like 120,000 of them or whatever the numbers are. So, it, you know, so like this big business that's a, re- a result of that. Um, and I think that they sort of angled that as, you know, that's capitalism, which I think nothing further right. from the truth. Uh, which, right. It is a racket and it is aimed, it is played at, against the people not not necessarily the enemy although the enemy well the enemy is the people and it's it's the it's the people of all nations so yeah well like in recent news there's that serious thing where they dropped the mother of all bombs and uh you know there was some report that said that each of the bombs was worth 16 million dollars or something like that and they dropped and they killed like 34 militants and who knows how many innocent people and it turns right. out that 
you do the math on that, and it's like $400,000 per militant killed. And you compare that to the average, you know, income in the United States. And I'm like, all right. So you could have employed for each person murdered over in Syria, like nine people. <laughs> uh, but well, you like a mafia hit is like, like 20 grand or something like that. I'm sure you could find people to kill people for like nothing over there. I mean, if you really wanted to like kill people and you were like, okay with that, you could just slip like a couple hundred bucks into the average, like, I don't know, immoral, downtrodden Iraqi person. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like there are cheaper ways to kill people. You know, the irony is that, that because of this type of weapon that was used, uh, the anti-war left is coming out of their caves. And it's really kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're starting to see all these protests. Uh, there's, um, you know, don't bomb Syria. Don't, don't start the war. And I agree with that. Like, don't start the war, right? But I was saying that for the last one and the, and the one before that and, and all that and, and the next 500, like you were saying. Uh, but because it's Trump, because there's an R next to his name, now the anti-war left is coming back. Um, <clears throat> but a couple well, of comments but, I've, but, I've seen. Are, okay, go ahead. No, but I think you might be saying it right now is that Trump is getting a lot of accolades from a lot of people now, now that he's murdered a bunch of people openly. Like yes. a whole bunch of um, like the media types are now. like, oh, right, now he's presidential, and oh, I can get behind this. This is great. Like Hillary Clinton's like, yeah, buddy, good job. I didn't think you were going to go around murdering people. I'm all about murdering people, so good job, Trump. So yeah. they're against him when he's saying things, like grab him by the pussy, but they're all about murdering people. Well, and right, I mean, these shows- same- these same people were, were like totally fine with Obama using remote control drones killing people, you know, shooting up weddings and schools and hospitals and shit. Um, yep. But now that it just shows you how in bed or how bought and paid for they are by the uh, military industrial complex, if you want to call it that. Right. But uh, there is a slight split. I, I will agree that the media is all about like, yes, now he's presidential. But the anti-war left are coming out saying, well, he used the wrong kind of method of killing. <laughs> because drones that's, were okay. That's their objection. Of, yeah. <laughs> bombs were okay, or, or drones were okay, but bombs are not. You it's know, funny. And, um, did you see the, uh, I guess, um, Richard Spencer was holding an anti-war rally, and Antifa came and protested it? No, I didn't see that. I saw some Berkeley stuff recently where there was like this pro-Trump march and a Antifa march going on at the same time, and there were more pro-Trumpers then Antifa and Antifa people were getting the shit kicked out of them. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. But um, it's some fucked up shit. I, it's funny how, I don't even know. I mean, it, it comes from what, not having principles? <laughs> I, don't, I, can't, see, I can't pretend to understand the mindset of what's happening with the left in this country today. I, 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 it just boggles my mind. Right, and the right's not much different, but I don't know. At least they're a little bit more contained, I guess. Maybe I don't know. It's it's all bad, but especially, I mean, when you're upset about, you're not upset that the people got murdered. You're upset about how much it costs or the 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 way it's done or something like that. I, can't we can't we be against murder? Is that is that too much to ask? Right, and and weren't the embargoes against Yemen responsible for like a hundred thousand deaths or something like that? And that was something Obama did uh, that apparently the left's totally fine with. I mean, it killed way more people than even the drone strikes. 
Well, I was over there on the west side of this state, and I understand it's like one of these blue states. But you see these like Obama stickers, bumper stickers on the cars, and like how he's just like the greatest president. And like I'm with Obama, and Obama's awesome. I, it, like anything that guy did, anything that murdering psychopath did, and you're totally cool with it because he was wore a blue tie. Are you kidding well, me? My favorite bumper sticker was uh, the one that said Obama cares because he's so compassionate. Yep. Yeah, that's that's because that's well, that's that's all about the emotional the emotional left. Yeah. He seems like right. he cares. Well, on that, on that note, caring, let, let's care about our listeners' ears and shut this one down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're sorry, folks. We rambled a bit, but we kind of got back to the movie a little bit. Sorry if you were looking for a concise uh, review of War Dogs, but that's not really what we do. Yeah, we keep talking about it. We go off on tangents and fly around, and who knows what we do. We keep talking about getting down to like 10 minutes, but it's not going to happen. No, 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 sorry. So, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, yeah, we've been the actual Anarchy podcast talking about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho capitalist perspective. We've got new cover art for the podcast. We've got uh yeah, buddy. new new uh cool things in the works that we'll let you guys know about in the near future. We've got a bunch of shows we're gonna be doing the next couple of weeks that will uh come out uh Sundays and then I think we're gonna also have a an Earth Day special, so that's coming up. Actually that's gonna post before this one, so Get in your time machines, folks, in your DeLoreans, go 88 miles an hour, and just pretend yeah, like so it didn't you know, <laughs> By the time you've heard this, you'll already listen to the Earth Day episode, yeah, which we so have not for, yet recorded. We pre-thank you for listening to the show. We haven't even recorded yet. If it's any good. We don't know. We're not gonna, we don't know if it's going to be good or not. Yeah, we don't. We don't. Really, we don't. Uh, in the meantime, click on any of the Amazon links, do some purchases there. Amazon is super awesome. Uh, great service, great prices. We've got the prime link down at the very, very scroll down at the bottom of our page and try that out for 30 days for free. We've got the Tom Woods Liberty classroom. There's a couple of other things. Oh, we've got the turbulence training thing, which is, uh, the one we talked about on the Mad Max episode. My wife's been doing three times a week. She dropped a bunch of weight, got in great shape. Uh, and that's super cheap. So check that out. That's at uh, readrothbar.com slash TT. That's two T's at the end there. Uh, any other ways they can support us? Oh, I got one, Robert. Mm. Calling out to all y'all motherfuckers. We need oh, to get a hundred subscribers on YouTube. And that, that's like a big goal I want to push because once we get that hundred, then we can get the custom URL because right now we only have like 39 or 40. Uh, subscribers and we're stuck with this super long like launch code style URL. It's like youtube.com slash blah 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 blah. I mean like Hillary Clinton's butt looks better than this URL we have right now. So if we can get some YouTube subscribers and I know we've got a few hundred listeners at this point. I, I see the stats. So that's awesome. Thank you guys for listening. But go ahead and even create a fake profile and care like, doctor that shit. Like, if you took any lesson from War Dog, get around the bureaucratic red tape and make it happen so we get 100 subscribers on you uh, on YouTube so we can get the custom URL so we will literally be Actual Anarchy or YouTube.com slash Actual Anarchy. That's, that's our goal. And a noble goal it is. Yeah, do that for you if you could. Thanks. Take a second and do that. It'd be fantastic. We would love you forever. Be your best friend. Forever. 
So anyway, we have been the Actual Anarchy Podcast. I want to thank you guys for joining us. This has been War Dogs and us chilling for the YouTube subscribers. Um, we will have another episode coming out on Saturday. Uh, back in my time machine. Coming out yesterday for Earth Day. <laughs> so, uh, Robert, why don't you sign us out, man? I, I'm hitting a wall here. This is what we do. We shill for big anarchy. We uh, We push anarchy. We promote it. We point out where it is in the world. And uh, pointed out into the movie world so much, a little bit. Sometimes there's some anarchy in those movies. And uh, we'd like to share it with y'all. And we appreciate y'all listening. So my little my little freedom nerd babies, why don't you uh, go out there and hug somebody, love somebody, tell them how you feel. And uh, thank you for being a part of this more rational, more peaceful world. Take care, buddy. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do